0: The Apostle Paul writes, This grace was given to me, the least of all the saints, to proclaim to the Gentiles the incalculable riches of Christ, and to shed light for all about the administration of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. This is so that God's multifaceted wisdom may now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavens. This is according to his eternal purpose accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Lord. In him, we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. So then, I ask you not to be discouraged over my afflictions on your behalf, for they are for your glory. A symphony orchestra can range from 15 players to over 100. They're made up, of course, of different people from all sorts of backgrounds coming together with assorted instruments to put a composer's work on display. Symphonies typically have multiple movements with progressing themes and often complex, elaborate music. There are some famously difficult compositions floating around out there. Alexander Scriabin's composition called The Mysterium, uh, though never finished, he was meant to last an entire week. Scriabin was kind of a strange guy. He wrote things like "I am God" in his personal journal. He's a weirdo. He believed that if he finished the Mysterium and if it was performed in the foothills of the Himalayan mountains at the end of the 7 days, the world would quote dissolve into pure bliss. Well, that didn't happen. Uh, But we are in a section of Ephesians where Paul is explaining the mystery that God reveals through the church. And we can liken it in certain ways to a symphony. uh, Paul has called this uh, God's masterwork. You are part of his poema, his masterwork, a work of art. Uh, The melody of this symphony is grace. The movements last not for a week, but for an entire era of God's plan. Paul's been calling it a dispensation. We saw that last time. Together in the church, we perform this composition in harmonious cooperation, each with a part to play. Now, as part of the whole, each one of us individually, if you're a Christian here tonight, you have a specific part to play. We each are a specific instrument placed intentionally into this group by the Lord. We are God's workmanship, his masterpiece work of art, not made just for our own benefit, or even for just the betterment of the community around us, or even just the betterment of planet Earth itself. But as we'll see tonight, there is even a cosmic, otherworldly purpose for God's work through the church, and therefore through your life specifically. Paul has been talking a little bit about his specific place in God's plan, uh, in, in, in an effort to help us see our place in the orchestra, right? And then to encourage us to join the band, to get on the bandwagon of grace, as it were. So we begin in verse eight. Paul says, this grace was given to me, the least of all the saints, to proclaim the, to the Gentiles the incalculable riches of Christ. The grace given to Paul was his calling to preach to the Gentiles. We focused on this in our last study. It also includes the revelation he received direct from Jesus and the opportunities God gave him in his day-to-day living. But this grace was also the sufferings and obstacles that he endured day after day, place after place, including his current imprisonment. He called all of these things God's gift of grace to him. And here Paul identifies himself as the least of all the saints. Your version may say less than the least. Linguists explain that the term he uses is a funny Greek word meaning "smallester" or least -er. Uh, And so, again, I don't know Greek. I'm not a Greek scholar. But apparently the Greek language can do all kinds of fun things like make up words. Paul last time made up a word and apparently everybody knew what it meant. But he says here, you know who I am? I'm the smallest the leaster of all the saints. Many of you know that in Paul's letters, there's a wonderful and interesting progression in his self-identification. In an early letter, 1 Corinthians, Paul refers to himself as the least of the apostles. Here, a number of years later, he calls himself the least of the saints. And then in 1 Timothy, after this, he calls himself the worst of sinners or the chief of sinners. Now, it's not that Paul was sort of full of himself in the 50s and then finally thought better of it in the mid-60s. That's not what's happening. There's, of course, a lot of context around why he used each of those phrases in each of those letters. But it is helpful for us to to think about and meditate on, on a devotional level, um, the fact that he is, is, well, his humility did not lessen as he walked with the Lord. His humility, if anything, based off of this list, was growing as his walk with the Lord continued. He didn't think better of himself as the years wore on. He didn't say, well, I've been the apostle for quite some time now, and you know what? I think I'm the greatest of the apostles. Uh, You hear athletes do this, right? Isn't it so gross when like a current athlete says i think i'm the greatest of all time you're like Bleh. like it's so gross and but that's you know the apostle doesn't do that here even though if we said make a list of people who you think are the best christians of all time paul's maybe on the top of that list in our minds right but he didn't think of himself better and better as the years wore on. He had a very tender sensitivity to his own weakness, uh, to his own shortcomings, and his own need for the Lord's intervention. And of course, a very sensitive uh, understanding of the Lord's greatness and goodness and, and the Lord's activity on his behalf. Now, some might say, well, Paul's just saying that. It's sort of a false humility. We know people like that who kind of talk down about themselves in order to kind of get into someone's good graces, or we know they don't really think that about themselves, but that's not what Paul is doing either. Humility was not a virtue in the Greco-Roman empire like it is even in our secular society. It it was associated with failure and shame. And so Paul identifying himself this way is counterintuitive, counterculture, and it would have grabbed their attention. If Paul was the least, if he said, hey, other saints in the church at Ephesus, I'm the least of the saints, and let me tell you about my part to play in the unfolding work of God thanks to his grace and his power and his kindness and his love. Okay, well, if Paul is the least of the saints, well, then what does that mean for me, an Ephesian Christian? Paul says that I'm in front of the line as when it comes to him, right? I'm further on the spectrum in Paul's mind. And so what does that mean for me? If God uses the smallest, the leastest, if he uses this guy for his purposes, well, then what might he have for me to do? And in fact, that's exactly what Paul wants us to think about in this letter. This letter is all about having each Christian think very seriously about what God has empowered them to do, what he has equipped us with, and then what our day-to-day callings are, and then how that calling stretches throughout our lives and into the cosmic universe, and how we can walk in the reality of salvation with the heavenly perspective. So Paul absolutely wants us to think about these things. He said, one of the primary ways I fulfill my calling is by proclaiming the riches of Christ. Of course, he doesn't mean the physical riches. He means heavenly ones. The letter began by saying, we Christians have been given every spiritual blessing in the heavens through Christ Jesus, right? That whole first chapter was centered around us understanding just how good salvation is, just how good we have it, how wealthy we are in the Lord. Now we're sent out to proclaim the riches of Christ to others. Bible commentator R. Kent Hughes puts it this way. Our preaching should convey the truth that Christ always enriches life. He never subtracts from it. And that's an important thing, especially if we're presenting the gospel to a culture or to a person who thinks that, well, Christianity is just religion and religion is all about trapping me. Religion is all about taking away my freedoms. Religion is all about making me not enjoy life, not have fun. And that is a cultural understanding among unbelievers out there. And, and that's not the case. Our preaching needs to convey that Christ always enriches life. He never subtracts from it. Now, the Lord may remove some damaging, malignant thing from a person's life, some terrible spiritual disease, removing sin and removing shame and removing guilt and removing these sorts of things that tempt us to fall into the trap of sin. But our lives are always benefited by the Lord and by the gospel. His riches here, we're told, are incalculable. The term means they cannot be traced out. You can't find the outer boundary of them. You're never gonna get to the the final, you know, the final fence post where it's like, well, I made it all the way and now the Lord is tapped out. People love to know who's the richest man in the world. Is it Elon Musk? Is it this person? What company is worth the most, right? The Lord's outer boundaries of his riches can never be found out. Verse nine says, and to shed light for all about the administration of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So uh, Paul's goal was to shed light. Of course, before he was a Christian, back when he was known as Saul of Tarsus, he snuffed out a lot of lights, right? He savagely hunted Christians down. In the book of Acts, people heard that Paul was born again, and what did they say? They say, wait, isn't this the guy who caused such devastation, who wreaked such havoc in Jerusalem? But what a great example he is of how powerful God's salvation really is. He could save Saul and turn him into Paul. From the per- Christian perspective, from heaven's perspective, right? Paul may have been the worst person on planet Earth at, on, at the Damascus Road, right? Right? The worst blasphemer, the worst enemy of the church, the worst hater of Jesus Christ, the person who did the most to harm the church and to to butcher God's people, right? He literally may have been the most terrible spiritual person on the planet at the time. And the Lord says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I would love to save you if you're into that. That'd be great. Uh, I'd love to make you my son and, and give you new life and forgive you of all the things that you have done. The Lord could take this destroyer and make him a deliverer. Hands that he used for murder could now be used for miracles. A tongue he used to blaspheme would now broadcast the good news of Jesus Christ. God transforms people. He makes us new creations. He brings us new purpose, a new spiritual family, a new way of life, bringing everything together in Christ according to the purposes of his will. That's what the Lord does. And that's why we always have to keep in mind that the church as a local body or the church universal can be involved in a lot of things. It's, you know People always say, well, how active in the community or how active in politics should a church be? That's up to what the Lord wants and how the Lord is going to direct you as an individual and direct a, a particular local fellowship. But we always need to remind ourselves that what people really, really need is the transformation of becoming born again, of being a new creation. Because passing a law can be a really good thing, But you know what's even better? The lawmakers becoming born-again Christians. Because then all of the laws that they want to pass are infused with their understanding of what God has done and what God has said and what the truth is and what should be done, right? It's more important that you turn a a civic leader into a Daniel, if you can, than to get uh, King... uh, Darius to pass a law, right? Because we all know that another law can come along and just cancel out the first one. And so it's not that we shouldn't be active in these other tangible things. It's not that we shouldn't go and involve ourselves uh, in community efforts or politically. We should, as the Lord leads. But the thing we always want to keep in mind is that the real answer is for individuals to become born again that the light would be shed into the darkness of their hearts and that they would become new creations. Now, this phrase, to shed light, can be translated to make plain. Your version may have that. And it's a great litmus test for how we are communicating the gospel to people. Are we making plain who God is and what he has said and what his plan is? Because that's the job, to make it plain. Not to show how much we know or not to, you know, make it complicated or make it difficult, but to make it plain. Now, the question then would arise, well, if God wants to make himself plain, as this verse says, a person, an unbeliever might ask, well, then why not just write a big, you know, miraculous message in the sky? In fact, I had someone ask me that recently. I was talking to them about the Lord and they said, if God is real... Why doesn't he just show himself and write his message in the sky? And you know what? It's a fair question. Does God want to make himself plain or not? But we have to think through this. The first answer is that, well, he actually has written a message in the sky because the heavens declare the glory of God, right? And, you know, on a silly level, it's like, okay, well, if he writes his message in the sky, hopefully you speak the language of heaven, you know, and, and it's, you know, something you can understand. That's like a silly thing to say, but he has written his message in the sky. The heavens declare the glory of God. On top of that, he has written more than 750,000 words on the pages of Scripture about himself and his plan and his truth. He's preserved those words for every generation for thousands of years, had them translated into thousands of languages, sent to every corner of the world. He did bodily appear and walk the earth, not just in appearances in the Old Testament, but he appeared in the incarnation for more than 30 years, God, the God man, God in human flesh walking around, talking, doing stuff. And guess what? Humanity largely rejected him. They refused to believe, even when they witnessed his power firsthand. Maybe no greater example than Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. There's a big group of people. He raises a man from the dead who had been dead for days and days. And they said, That's interesting. We better kill this guy. And we better kill the guy he just unkilled. Let's do that. Right? They watched it happen and they said, we need to kill this guy. On top of that, God has sown eternity into the heart of every human being so that they will grope for God. And he's made the promise that if a person seeks him, they will find him. Right? That's just scratching the surface of the things God has done to reveal himself and to show himself to be true and real and active in the world around us. But set that aside for a minute. So why doesn't God just write a big billboard in the sky? I I was thinking about that question and you know it's just it's just a little thought experiment. But imagine that tomorrow you are driving down the 99, right? You're going to Fresno for some reason. They make you, they're making you go to Fresno. And so you go to Fresno for some reason and you're driving down the 99 and there's all those weird billboards all the time. On the 99, but imagine that one of them is just black and white, really big, and it says, Gene, your great great uncle you don't know has a fortune for you. Call this number. Would you call that number? I wouldn't. I don't think you would either. If it had, if it, if it for real had your name on there, it said, call this number. You know what the last number I'm gonna call is? That number. I, I just am not gonna do it. Because we, It's a message, and somebody put that up, but it's like, yeah, I don't... That's so impersonal and so weird, I wouldn't do it. But what if this great-great-uncle you've never met sent a friend to come find you? Explain the situation and say, hey, listen, if you have a minute, I want to talk to you because you don't know me, and you've never met your great-great-uncle. You didn't even know he was around, but he knows all about you, and he actually has this incredible inheritance, and he wants to give this inheritance to you And I know it sounds too good to be true, but here's a down payment. I brought it with me. And here are all the documents showing who he is and, and how all of this is true. And I'm here to help you get in contact with your great-great-uncle if you want to. And I'll try to answer all the questions you have to the best of my ability. And I'll tell you this, it's not just your great-great-uncle. In fact, this guy turns out to be also my great-great-uncle. And all of these things that he says are true, he's started giving me part of the inheritance as well. And now I'm here to tell you so that you also can have the benefits that I've also received. Well, that would be a lot different than a weird random billboard on the side of the road, wouldn't it? Yeah, we are the friends that God has sent to make these things plain to the people that God loves in the world around us. Things that seem impossible, things that seem too good to be true, but they are in fact true, that God is real, that he is the creator, that he is the savior, that he is a generous giver, that he's very interested in bringing those people into his family. And so our goal as Christians is to make plain, to clear the path, not to put obstacles between the Lord and those he wants to save. Verse 10 says, This is so that God's multifaceted wisdom may now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavens. Multifaceted is a word that can mean many-colored, very varied. It was used to describe uh, things like flowers, Um, or embroidered items, or woven carpets. And tonight I'm having us think about it like an orchestra. All of these pieces coming together to be woven into a common purpose to create a whole out of many individual parts. This was the great mystery Paul revealed in Ephesians, that Jews and Gentiles, men and women, slave and free, rich and poor, were all being brought together, knit together as living stones into the family of God, in this thing that is called the church for God's glorious work of art. But here we learn that the church is not just meant for you and me. It is not just meant for this earth. God apparently has a cosmic, supernatural purpose for us. Through the church, he plans to teach angelic beings things about his wisdom. That's what he says. Uh, Made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavens. He's gonna talk more about rulers and authorities. Maybe your version calls them powers and principalities. Angels are not all-knowing. We read the Bible and we see that angels are super powerful, right? They dwell in the heavenlies. They are able to travel great distances. And so I think sometimes it's hard to to think that angel, it's hard to not think that angels know everything, but they don't know everything. They're not all-knowing. They're not omniscient. The Bible indicates that they have a lot to learn and that they want to learn. In fact, it tells us that they are very interested in understanding what God is doing with us. Uh, Peter says that the angels long to catch a glimpse of these things. And one of the Bible linguists says the word he uses is that they lean down to try to figure out what, what in the world is he doing with these people? And so they're interested in what's going on. And God says, yeah, and I want to teach you things about who I am and about my wisdom through the church. It's incredible to think that angels are investigating my life and your life. But Ephesians says that in eternity, God plans to put the church on display to demonstrate things like his kindness. And here we see to to use us as an object lesson to teach heavenly beings about his wisdom. I don't understand exactly how he's going to work that out or all that he's trying to teach them, but that's the broad stroke of it here. I realize that so often I'm trying to figure out what is God showing me for my life, which is a good thing, very necessary and important thing. The Bible wants us to think about that. But this you know, these verses gave, me, gave us another thought to tuck away, not just what is God showing me in my life, what is God showing angels through my life? And it's like, what? That's crazy. But it's a very different perspective, right? Remember that scene in Job 2? That very startling, stunning scene. There's the divine counsel. All of these heavenly creatures that we don't quite know a whole lot about, they're assembled before the Lord. The devil himself comes in because he has been summoned before God. Not all of these powers and principalities are good angels. A lot of them are very bad creatures from the Bible's perspective, right? They're evil. Um, Specifically, when we get later in the book, this group is seen as a negative group, and, and Paul says, hey, we need to... We don't struggle against flesh and blood. We're struggling against these guys. Okay, but so there's the divine counsel and the devil comes in and what does God say? Have you considered my servant Job? Uh, I'd rather the devil not consider me, please. That would be great if he would just leave me alone. I don't wanna be on his contact list, right? Um, And so he says, have you considered my servant Job? And then what happens? He uses Job's life As an object lesson for the divine counsel. And on top of that, he's working through Job's life for Job and for his friends and for his community and for the human community at large since it was put into the scripture. But we we need to realize that God's plan is so much greater in scope and scale than we realize. He's doing things through your life that ripple, not just through your life, not just through your community, not just through your family tree, but apparently into the eternal heavenly realm. And this also helps us to have a proper perspective on spiritual warfare. That's a topic Paul is going to speak about more in chapter 6. But one of the best ways for us to walk in victory is to simply live out our calling in the church. Because through the church, we're told, God is making his wisdom known to the rulers and authorities in heaven. Verse 11. This is according to his eternal purpose accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. When you attend a symphony... Your attention is on the piece of music. Now, you may know the name of one of the soloists, but you have no idea who the second double bassoon player is, and you don't really care, right? You're there. Why? You're here, there to hear Beethoven's masterpiece, right? In a sense, it doesn't actually matter who's playing the piece, just that there is someone there who knows the music and is ready to play, right? You don't really care Who makes up the 100-member orchestra? You just want people there to make up the orchestra, right? So Paul is pointing out that, listen, it's not about me, Paul the apostle. It's about Jesus. He's the one that is accomplishing these things. He's the conductor, right? He's the head of the church. It's God's composition, his masterpiece that he is building, he is playing, he is creating, this is one of the problems in the church at Corinth, if you recall. The, the people in, in the church at Corinth were elevating certain individuals and, and making a fan base for them. I'm of Apollos, or I'm of Paul, or I'm of Peter, right? And it was just, it was just weird because it's Jesus who, who accomplishes these things. He's the one. It's not us. It's not some celebrity Christian out there that we should care about and hang on every word that they say. It's Christ. It's what he says, it's his word, it's his power, it's his work, it's his accomplishing. Well, if it's all Christ, then who cares if I participate or not? What do I matter? If if Christ just wants a warm body, then it doesn't matter what I do or don't do. It's true that God doesn't need you, but he wants you. He wants you on the team, he wants you in the band. He has a chair in, in our analogy here, he has a chair with your name on it. And he says, what I would really like is for you to be in this spot to play a certain string of music for my glory and for the good of those around you and to teach the heavenly beings some things through your life. That's what he wants. We've all seen the movies where they assemble the team, right? Whether it's like a heist movie or or a, a military movie, they assemble the team. They get this person for that aspect of the job, that person for the other part of the job. Listen, God knocks on the door of your heart and he says, I want you for this thing that I'm doing. Do you want in? And it's not just a one-time thing. This is an eternal plan, the unfolding of a work that is going to last forever. One of the commentators noted, you know, think about all of the efforts and organizations and worldviews in the world. Marxism is going to cease to exist. Islam is going to cease to exist. Free market capitalism is going to cease to exist. One thing that is not going to cease to exist is the church. The church of all of these human organizations is the only thing that is going to survive history, and the church is going to rule the universe alongside Christ. And so the Lord says to us today, hey, you want in on this? Because you can get in on it right now. I have a special spot for you. But it's his design, right? He's the composer. He's the conductor. It's his decision, his strategy, his plan, his positioning. I remember going into college, uh, I tried out for the concert choir, needed to get the choir scholarship, so I tried out for the concert choir. In high school, I was like one of the only boys in the school who wanted to sing and was willing to sing loud, right? And so, because of those two reasons alone, I, they, you know, they made me a tenor in high school choir because that's what you do in high school choir. So then I get to, you know to this college audition for concert choir, And uh, the director says, so what part do you sing? I said, well, I'm a tenor. He said, no, you don't. No, you aren't. (laughs) This is news to me. (laughs) He says, you're going to be a bass. I said, I can't sing as low as a bass needs to sing. And he's like, yeah, that's fine. You'll be a baritone if there's a baritone part, but otherwise you'll be a bass. And I realized that, number one, he knew better. I really wasn't a tenor. Uh, And then number two, I realized, oh, he would rather me be a weak bass than a terrible tenor. (laughs) Okay, I can do that. And there were plenty of times where I thought I would listen to these really, really great singers in front of me. We were in the cheap seats in the back. And these really, the tenors, I was like, oh, man, these guys can really sing. And then I would listen to the real basses. Like, next to me, I'd be like, oh, man, these guys can really sing, like, low. I can't get even close. And then me and a couple other baritones were, like, slumming it over here. And I thought, I probably don't deserve this chair, but this chair has my name on it. And so... I guess I'll enjoy the scholarship, you know, and so, but, but the director understood a bunch of components that I didn't understand. He was the one putting the group together. He knew what slots needed to be filled. He could look at who I was and realize, yeah, you're not going to be able to do this, but you could do this. I can help you over here. You're going to fail miserably over there. And so he was the one putting it together. And in the same way, the Lord says, yeah, I have a spot for you. It may not be the spot you think you want. It may not be the plan you made for yourself, but I have the master plan, and it's an eternal plan that is mind-boggling and mind-blowing, and I would like you to sign on for my plan. That's what the Lord says. Verse 12, in him we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Did you know you have freedom of speech? Not the kind that's being eroded and censored more and more in our spiraling society. No, you have freedom of speech before God himself. You don't have to cower before God if you're a Christian. You don't have to be afraid to speak to God about anything going on in your heart. God wants us to have the kind of relationship with him that the closest of friends have with each other. That access is available now. And this is a constant reminder that we need. We need to be reminded of this bold access that is made available to us. And I know we need a constant reminder of that because Paul himself is going to ask the Ephesians at the end of this letter, he says, hey, would you pray for me that I would be as bold as I ought to be? Right, so if if he needed that reminder of the bold access that God has made available to him, he's the apostle, he's the miracle worker, he's the inspired to write these scriptures, right? Right. If he needs that reminder, of course, we need it as well. And so as we exercise our faith and do so imperfectly, we want to remind ourselves of God's full faithfulness, that he has given us so much, that he has paved the way, and that, and that these things are true about our relationship with him. We don't have to scale the wall to get into his presence. His power and grace and kindness makes it all possible, and he will not relent because we do things imperfectly. He says, you have bold access to me right now and forever. Verse 13, and so then I ask you not to be discouraged over my afflictions on your behalf, for they are your glory. Paul's afflictions were many and severe, but we see here he was not afraid of them. And at least at this moment, he wasn't even discouraged by them. He says, it's on your behalf. It is for your glory. It's my part to play. In fact, these are a gift from God. I'm so lucky to have them. If you go to a symphony, you don't pity the musicians for the countless thousands of hours dedicated to study and practice, do you? Do you ever go up there and when they're doing their violin solo, like blowing your mind, like how are they even doing that? And you're like, oh, but they probably like had to miss a couple parties because they were practicing their violin. Oh, they practice for 20,000 hours in order to get to this level. You don't think that. You don't feel bad about their sore fingers or the fact that that poor guy has to carry a 30-pound tuba around everywhere that he goes. I don't care at all about that. I just want you to dot the I on the Ohio State thing, guy. Like, get your tuba over there, right? I don't care how heavy it is. We understand that these things are part of the life for the musician, right? And we're glad. We're glad. They're doing the thing. Because listen to this music. And listen how it enriches the world around us, just how beautiful this music is as they play it. And so Paul essentially is saying that, but in a much more heavenly frame of mind, much more eternal perspective, he says, oh yeah, those scars from my scourgings, those are like the calluses guitar players get on their fingers. Being in prison for five years, that's, like being, that's just part of being first chair apostle to the Gentiles. That's just part and parcel. It's for your glory. It's on your behalf. Paul looked at his life with all the hardship and the pain and the opposition, and he says, this is a privilege. It's God's grace for me. In a sense, he said, I don't deserve this. But he didn't say it in the way we usually hear it, like, how can this bad thing be happening to me? I don't deserve this. He says, man, I don't deserve the amount of favor God is showing me right now. As he's like literally chained to a weird guy who hates him and might want to kill him until he preaches the gospel to him and he becomes saved, right? but he's like, I'm chained to a guy and I don't, I don't deserve the amount of grace God has given me. I'm the smallest I'm the littlest. I'm the worst of sinners. I persecuted the church. I blasphemed the name of Jesus Christ. And not only that, though, he understood that his suffering had a great purpose. He said, this suffering that I'm enduring is going to accomplish great things for you guys. And so it's worth it. And that's a sub-theme we've been talking about the last few studies His being strong through suffering would help them be strong when suffering came. This testimony of his suffering would help propel the message of the gospel to others who heard it. Let me tell you about Paul and his message. As far as as Paul was concerned, this was a wonderful gift of grace. It reminds us of that great phrase in Genesis 6, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, right? Well, what did Noah find? He found a really big job to do. He found a really hard set of circumstances to endure. But along with those things, he found the power to go through that situation. He found deliverance from the Lord. He found all that he needed for life and for godliness. God's favor for Noah, the grace that he found, was a calling and a place in the plan of God. And he played his part very faithfully. Not perfectly, but faithfully. Adolf Von Hensley's piano concerto in F minor is so challenging that only three recordings of it exist. Apparently, it requires the player's hands to have certain abnormal formations and elasticity. Adolf had these things. There's something weird with his hands, and he was a piano virtuoso, and he composed this piece, and regular players can't play it. You have to have something going on with your fingers. <laughs> So it's a special piece for special people, right? Noah found grace and a special place in God's plan. Paul found grace and a special place in God's plan. That's what he's been talking about in this chapter. And then in Ephesians 4, what are we going to read? Now grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So Paul says, like me is for you. We all find grace in the eyes of the Lord and a place in his plan. So the question is, what is my place in God's plan? He's invited us into the orchestra of the church, the multifaceted, radiant symphony of his power and grace. The composition he sets before us, it may be very challenging. It may require special people to play it. Uh, It may demand intense levels of dedication at times, but... It is good, it is masterful, and it is eternal in scope. So let's find our place, find your chair in the orchestra, and let's join the song.